0: There's a connection between our conversation about blue mind, that experience, the experience of awe and wonder, and what happens to our brains when we experience that in nature. And what happens is it grows our compassion. So awe, the greatest source of awe on the planet is the ocean and the waters. That experience of awe creates compassion, creates a compassionate mind.
1: Welcome to the Good Tidings Podcast, where we highlight and inspire a community of givers with your host, the founder of the Good Tidings Foundation, Larry Harper. Well, it is a pleasure to be sitting here in Davenport, California with one of my more recent personal mentors, Dr. Wallace J. Nichols. So Jay, welcome to the Good Tidings podcast. Yeah, thank you, Larry. It's really good to have you out here in the redwoods with me. <laughs> we were talking earlier, and when I was diagnosed with dementia back in March of 2019, you know, I was presented with kind of a grim outcome and, and really not a great path forward. And no one really lent any positivity on a way to improve yourself let alone stay the same so i didn't want to believe it i didn't think it was true so i thought i'd go out and create you know my own road and that truly began with finding the national best selling book entitled blue mind written by my guest today and since then we we've like we've spoken before we've had a chance to speak at the international surf therapy conference so a couple times a year i like to kind of go off topic a little bit with my podcast guests and get a little selfish and have a guest that has helped me, I think will help others and just intrigues me in general. And with mental health being at the forefront of the health industry over the past couple of years, I thought it would be great to have you on this podcast, Jay. So first of all, this is just a wonderful book. Where did the motivation for the book come from? Well,
0: like you and a lot of of people as a kid, I just loved being in the water (laughs) and, you know, turns out my adoptive mother is sitting here with us today. So growing up, adopted with questions about origin and things like that. I was a bit of an introvert. They called it shy back then, but I was kind of an introvert. And my favorite place, I didn't really like to talk to people much, but my favorite place was underwater or in the water because nobody asks you questions there. They can't. And then you don't have to answer them because you can't. So... That love of water probably led me to a career as a marine biologist and just a lifelong exploration of the world's waters. And at some point I started thinking about the science behind that and the science behind your experience. So I went looking for a book about it so that I could apply it to my own work and my own life. And I couldn't find the book that I wanted to read. I looked everywhere, I looked out of print, I looked in other languages. And I couldn't find the book about your brain on water. I found books about your brain on music, your brain on stress, your brain on happiness, your brain's ability, you know, neuroplasticity, brain's ability to change, you name it. There was somebody writing a book about the brain plus everything, but not water. I even found a book about your brain on nature, and in that book, water seemed to be missing for some reason, <laughs> completely overlooked in favor of the green space, the trees and the grass and the forest. And so I tried to convince some other smart people that they should write the book so that I could eventually read it. And I failed at that. <laughs> and eventually pitched it to a guy named Oliver Sachs, Dr. Oliver Sachs, a great neurologist, wonderful writer, brilliant thinker, and swimmer, water lover. I thought he's gonna do it. And, and for me, it was an intellectual academic mentor. And when I pitched it to him, he said, it's a fine idea. (laughs) You do it. (laughs) Put it right back on me. I like that. And five years later, I delivered a first edition hardcover signed copy to him in New York. And then about a year after that, he passed. So that's the story. I, I, I didn't want to write this book. I wanted to read it. And in order to read it, I needed to write it. And then I guess forget about it and then read it fresh with a fresh mind. Yeah. Which is in fact, you know, talking about it, talking about Blue Mind with you is like, it's a refresh. Like hearing about Blue Mind in action in your life and in your insights and in your perspective, personally and professionally, is like a big reset button. It, it helps me see the whole concept in a completely new way. And so every time I meet someone who has taken this very simple idea and run it up their flagpole so to speak it is kind of like a reread yeah. you know a relearning of what this concept can be you know?
1: yeah yeah and we're sitting here today in this beautiful tent on your property in Davenport amongst the redwoods and right next to a flowing creek and I I've read in your book and many of your publications how you landed here but can you expand on this 1,200-mile trek? You, your wife, and an 18-year-old baby. Said, 18 18, 18-month. 18-month-old <laughs> baby. She's a 19-year-old baby now, but <laughs> took <laughs> on foot. How does that happen? And tell us about that a little bit.
0: Yeah, throughout human history, some of the people I admire most have taken long walks and found wisdom in just long, long-distance treks. So I always thought, you know, that would be so cool to do. And one day I proposed the idea to Dana. And initially it was, let's walk from Alaska to the tip of South America, which is basically non, there's non-starter. But it's probably a good strategy. Then we we compromised on Oregon to Mexico. <laughs> and so we carved out the time. Probably the hardest part of the whole thing was making the time. This was in almost 20 years ago, and we started walking down the coast, and it was a, a coastal track to about 1,800 kilometers, camping, walking, sleeping, eating, repeat, basically. And we came through this area and loved it and started calling it the Slow Coast because it's adjacent over the mountains from Silicon Valley, which you could call Fast Valley, maybe the fastest valley on the planet right now in more than one way. And so, this adjacent coast where you don't even have cell service, <laughs> we started calling the slow coast. Made it our home, and now fast forward twenty years, here we are. Yeah, you know, yeah, uh, amazing. And you
1: termed the the termed the name slow coast. Yes, yeah, yeah because, it seemed to suit suit yeah.
0: the the lack of infrastructure. There's no Starbucks. There's barely a gas station. There's crappy cell service. Things do kind of slow down as you come from the north or come up from the south. You feel it. You get past the Ritz Carlton and Half Moon Bay. And once that's in your <laughs> in your rear view mirror and fades away, it really does take a step down. And you've got ranches and a few wineries and lots of organic agriculture. And really it's a, a well protected area as well. All the state beaches and and the agricultural open space yeah. that was hopefully here for the duration. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And were you shocked during your research that a marine biologist that you are could become a leader in brain study and cognitive function.
0: <laughs> I still am. I still <laughs> still trying to figure that one out. But I think it's an example. Of, you know, when when there's a vacuum and you know it, when there's something needs to be done and you see it clearly, do it. You know, figure out how to do it. It might be um, sort of out of your lane, so to speak. I mean, my PhD is in evolutionary biology and wildlife ecology, not neuroscience or psychology. So I had a lot to learn, but I really enjoyed it. And in fact, one of the things I did to sort of uptake this new knowledge is I listened to MIT courses while swimming laps on this little, uh, (laughs) little waterproof iPod thing that clips to the back of your head. I am a proponent of not putting sound in your ears while swimming because there's the meditative quality that's so important, but it was great. I could listen to these hour long neuroscience lectures and just lose myself and sort of listen and learn while you know working on on what became this book but yeah i think you know i guess it's poetic that a, a marine biologist ended up filling the the gap but like i said earlier i really wanted some of my colleagues who are neuropsychologists to step in and and do a better job yeah. at it and maybe they still will i think i think the book that i wrote I can certainly be improved upon somebody with more of a background in brain research could probably do an updated version perhaps. And I'd love to read that. So just throw that challenge out there, do better than I have, or maybe some students that are up and coming in this field. And it has become a field, you know, this set of questions about what does water do to our bodies and minds therapeutically has in fact become a a big field and the best and brightest, young people and big thinkers are finding these questions really rich and interesting and are devoting their lives to things like surf therapy practice and research all kinds of aquatic therapies open water swimming in the therapeutic sense and the, the clinical research has just really exploded since since this book came out and i'm not doing the research i just sort of i just sort of like Kicked the hornet's nest, so to speak, and said, yeah. you know, this is interesting. Let's blow it open. And it is it is blowing open.
1: Yeah, which is great. And of all the medical advances just that seem to keep coming year over year, why is the brain so difficult
0: to figure out? You know, our brains are arguably the most complex thing in the universe. So that's the short answer. Yeah. <laughs> We're traditionally not very good at actually looking at our brains compared to other organs they were really hard to study until until we got the technology that allows you to look at your own brain while you're still using it. So for hundreds of years, the only way to study the brain was sort of post-mortem. So you could look at a, a brain after the person was done using it, so to speak, and look at the anomalies and perhaps the injuries or the differences and try to map that back onto the way they behaved you know, it's relatively recent, last few decades, that we've got the detail, you know, the fMRIs and the EEGs to kind of say, okay, we're gonna look at your brain while you're still using it and deduce what's working, what's not working. And so part of it is just the youth of the field. Given 30, 40 more years, uh, like we have with cardiac research, we will we will see incredible inv- advances, just you can count on that. You describe your situation. Well, you're probably thinking, "Well, great, my timing isn't isn't spot on here." But the people, you know, my kids, when they get to be our age, there will be advances in in, in brain science, in medical treatments, in wearable technology that will probably give us early warnings mm. on anomalies. So your your smartphone connected to a smartwatch connected to perhaps your smart glasses that even monitor anomalies in your sleep patterns, in your speech patterns, in your brain waves as well, will detect anomalies earlier. And then hopefully alongside with that, we'll have the, the treatments and the therapeutics that will respond to those early warning signs. So that's the future and it's, yeah. it's coming, it's, it's almost here now. Meanwhile, we are dealing with dementia, Alzheimer's, et cetera post-traumatic stress, and fumbling around a little bit. And I guess you could say you, you fumbled into a solution, something that works for you, Blue Mind, <laughs> yeah. that maybe should scale up as well. And then the research on the therapeutic event, therapeutic impacts and benefits of things like surfing, swimming, floating, just floating in water, sitting and listening and looking at water, paddling on the water, are starting to become more mainstream. We're seeing, doctors in the UK prescribing these activities insurance paying for it and as that sort of comes to the US I think it'll it'll help yeah. you know it's not a not a magic bullet silver bullet solution to serious diseases disorders injuries illnesses but it's definitely should be part of everybody's toolkit and that's kind of our, it's kind of where we're headed that's the goal i mean my and what remains of my professional career that's a hundred percent of what I'm focused on is making blue mind common knowledge yeah. and common practice. Ideally for 8 billion people, for everybody, you know, that everybody understands it and has access in some way. So,
1: you know, well, I like that too, because I,
0: you know, as I kind of
1: preach my, or pound my own drum on the ocean, I realize, you know a lot of people don't live by an ocean. And that's where your book comes in and talks about water in general, letting water be a part of it and looking at water, let water roll over you. So I really appreciate that. And so with that, where did the term blue mind come from and what does blue mind mean? So
0: blue mind refers to that very familiar state. The state of blue mind is a mildly meditative state that you get when you're near in on or underwater by water, as you just said, We could be talking about lakes rivers or oceans but we could also be talking about pools and spas showers waterfalls rainstorms even virtual water so a painting of water or maybe your favorite jack johnson song that you know was inspired by water or a film about water i think of the great film the big blue photography poetry moby dick the first page of moby dick is all about this idea So water in all of its forms, from the wild to the domestic, to the urban, to the virtual, and even your own memories of water. So you close your eyes and think of the water you love the most, and you start to move into a state called blue mind, just with your own imagination. Some might call that meditation, right? It's a mildly meditative state that shifts us into a place that's calm, more connected to ourselves, more connected to each other, more connected to the world around us, more creative, it boosts our creativity. It does a lot of good things for us. Reduces stress, so you see the stress hormones decrease, the feel-good hormones go up, heart rate slows, breathing rate slows. It's probably easiest to understand blue mind in contrast to the state we refer to as red mind, which is our new normal. You wake up in the morning and you look at your phone before you get out of bed, before you even open a second eye, probably. I <laughs> uh, squinty looking at you know the first text message and you go, oh crap, got to get going. You look at your calendar, you look at your inbox and then you just go hard all day until the last thing you do may be to look at your phone one more time. And that's normal for kids, for adults, even when we're on vacation for some people. And that takes its toll. It does stress us out. Even if you're just experiencing a, a mild case of red mind all the time, it will burn you out unless you just step off, log out, and get in the water or get to whatever your source of blue mind is. So there's red mind, there's blue mind. If you're stuck in red mind for too long, you will end up in gray mind, which is burnout, breakdown, despondence, disconnection, lack of enthusiasm, and We've all probably felt some of that, especially these last two years where the news is bad, whatever news you're looking at, the news is sad, you might have anxiety, and eventually that just takes a toll. So back to blue mind, uh, I don't wanna stay in red, the red mind or <laughs> gray mind conversation too long. That is an antidote to the anxiety and the burnout. And again, it's not, it's not a magic fix at all. But we live on this water planet, and so if you don't get the real value of the water, I don't think you qualify to be fully human. And so that's kind of kind of our our goal is to make sure everybody gets it and has access in some form to that blue mind state.
1: Yeah, and, and when I was reading your book, starting out on this journey, you know, and and you brought up the points of how taking people into the ocean was helping with PTSD and with addiction and with autism. And I thought, well, that's definitely yielding more towards a demented mind, which I have. So I thought, could this help me? And so, you know, I brought these experiences of going into the ocean to the researchers I work with at the Pacific Brain Center in Santa Monica. So tell us about the successes you've seen the ocean actually do with those categories that I've mentioned.
0: There's a, a growing number of organizations and projects who are taking this idea and putting it into action. There are people working with addicts and hooking up their, their dopamine addiction, taking it off of something that wrecks your body and wrecks your life and wrecks your community and hooking that dopamine addiction to something like surfing or some activity that Generally speaking, surfing doesn't wreck your life. It can be, it can get in the way sometimes. You can become addicted to it, but the side effects are nowhere like, say, heroin or other drugs. So we see advances um, among people who work in in addiction, and it isn't just surfing. So free diving, scuba diving, paddling, and it really is about sort of owning your dopamine, basically understanding it and then kind of rewiring that addiction that's that's an oversimplification of course Mm -hmm. then we're also seeing work with veterans and first responders who are carrying around post-traumatic stress and have tried everything are highly medicated self-medicating with with drugs and alcohol and in some cases really water turns out to be the thing that works for them and for those that find that it works it really is powerful and you see the anecdotal stories are everywhere. You start adding them up and it's significant. Listening to your personal story and imagining, wow, what if that was shared with everybody who's going through what you're going through? Could there be thousands of people who say, well, I, you know, I listened to Larry and I tried it and it's, it's helping a lot. And that seems to be the case with post-traumatic stress, with anxiety disorders and addiction. The other important piece of this is your family members, your friends, your caregivers, the family members of people who struggle with addiction, they benefit too. Uh, The the kids on the autism spectrum, their parents and grandparents benefit too. So when they go to the beach with their kid and they have the best day of the year, that's an amazing thing for a mom or a dad or a grandma or grandpa. I gave a, a keynote once at a prison management conference And we talked about blue mind for those who are incarcerated. And that's just one small piece of it. There's also blue mind for those whose careers are out of prison, people who work there. It's hard work. You know, it's not great work either. Right? Not always rewarding, to put it mildly. And then the families of the people who work in prisons and the families of the people who are incarcerated. Imagine if they all understood what we're talking about. Yeah. And they could just take some of the edge off by falling more in love with their water, whatever that is. So challenging, of course, in a prison environment. But there's research on bringing Blue Mind into prisons and looking at how that helps those who are incarcerated to reduce their stress, reduce their anger, reduce the amount of violence, reduce the number of injuries for inmates as well as staff. And then ultimately hopefully help them on the path to getting out that research then pivots quickly in my mind to prison-like environments like a lot of office buildings and a lot of schools a lot of the the built world that frankly i can remember some some of my school experiences and some of those buildings were not bright and airy and green and blue they were pretty prison-like and we felt that way Offices can feel that way. So federal office buildings sometimes. Yeah, for sure. And so if you can bring some of this research to the built environment, whether we're talking about prison structures or office structures or home structures or school structures and have it inform well being and emotional health, I think that's interesting. Right. And again, way out I mean, I'm a I'm a marine biologist who studied turtles, so this is way outside of my, my zone. But I share blue mind at architectural conferences, mm-hmm. landscape conferences, wastewater conferences, swimming pool conferences. And in the, in the hands of those leaders, they figure out where it, where it applies. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I, just one more question on this before we do get to the turtles. But I notice myself, I get out of the water, the ocean. I turn to the ocean as soon as I'm out, because it's almost like it's drawing me back, partially to pay homage to the experience, but I want to go back, but I'm pretty cold at this point. <laughs> and then I get my car, I change, I get in the car, I start driving up Pacific Coast Highway, and I'm looking at the ocean as long as I can until it disappears, and that dopamine you call, how does that, where does that come from, that dopamine
0: effect of the ocean? Yeah. So it's personal. It's biological and it's cultural. So you have those three threads that you you weave together. So it, the whole thing kind of goes out the window if you look at the ocean and it scares the crap out of you and your first thought is, hell no, right? I have some friends who have that experience around water and my mom as well. She has fear of water and she looks at the ocean and if I said, we're gonna go dive in and swim to the bottom, that's anxiety. And if I said that to you, you'd say, you know, you just, all of a sudden, you'd be full of blue mind. Yeah. She'd be full of red mind. So that's that's part of it. So your your personal response to it based on a lifelong of ex, life of experience as well as a, a cultural context. So I'm gonna be clear about that. Yeah. But we all have the potential for it to be pleasant and healing. So what happens is, let's just assume you're one of those people who finds water to be pleasant for all kinds, all the, personal reasons when you step up to the water visually your field of view is simplified all the all the noise all the billboards all the screens all the faces not there it's just it's water it's not boring it's not monochromatic it's interesting but it's not information rich you may be reading the waves but you're not reading language you're not deciphering images on a screen auditorily it's the same thing you know, you've got the, the sound of the surf or the sound of the creek that's going by us now, that it isn't one static sound, it isn't white noise. It's got structure to it. It's got some something of interest to it. So psychologists call it soft fascination. It attracts you, it interests you, but it doesn't overwhelm you with processing. So your brain gets this break, right? And it switches into this blue mind mode, which is different than when you're processing data all day long, mm-hmm. when you're listening to voices, when you're thinking about what to say, trying to understand what you're being told, reading signs as they go by, watching what the cars around you are doing. That's amazing what we're able to do. But you get all that bandwidth back and you switch into this other mode. You don't just fall asleep, you, but you use that mode for creativity, for insight. So you switch into that other mode, it's very appealing. It can be very appealing and somewhat addictive. So it, it feels it feels good. But in the case of surfing and other water-based activities, that blue mind sort of mellow state is punctuated with the healthy kind of red mind. And you're like, okay, this wave, you get a little like the hair in your neck stands up. You're like, go, 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 paddle, paddle, kick, kick, or surf, surf. And then maybe wipe out. <laughs> Hold your breath. Come up and you're like yes I'm I'm ready for another one and then you get that calm state again you go out and you you wait in between the sets same thing in whitewater somewhat same in, in you know a lot of different aquatic act fishing you know it's not all yanking fish out of out of the water into the boat there's a lot of sitting waiting and staring at the water and then all of a sudden action and then a pause and then a long wait again so that is kind of part, partly where the, the addiction comes in. That's an adrenaline rush. That's the dopamine. That's the stimulation. That's the novelty. The next wave and the next wave, and they're all different. No wave is the same. So you're always, every day is different. Every wave is different. Who else is out there? So there is an addictive quality, but it's really a healthy kind of addiction. It doesn't destroy your body, wreck your life, and destroy your community in the process, like some of these other addictive activities or compounds that people are attracted to so again we want to use that addictive tendency that some people have as a force for good i remember mike merzenich who spoke at our first blue mind summit in san francisco pointed that out and he's he's a, a brilliant neuroscientist and he said if we can harness our addictive tendency as a force for good imagine people Like our friend, Van Carraza, who runs Operation Surf. He's addicted to helping people, truly. He'll readily say that. He used to be addicted to things that wrecked him. He's addicted to surfing. He's addicted to black coffee. And so that's functional. If you're addicted to beach cleanups, cool. Like if all you want to do when you wake up in the morning is go clean up a beach and help people, that's a really powerful addiction that can, it's regenerative. So that's kind of, Kind of part of the idea, and after this these few years, a lot of people are carrying around a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress over their future, over what's been lost, and they just need need to get in the water and therapeutically, and just re. I guess the key is remind yourself to do it, and take someone with you, because we all know somebody who's sitting on their couch right now that needs it, and if you're going out boogie boarding. It's great for you, but you probably know someone who should be out there, even if they have no idea how to do it. Yeah, Get them an extra board and just say, hey, this is going to be fun. We'll take it easy. But you've been inside too long. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
1: no, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. And I think I see that in the community because I can reach out to you and you'll sit down here and talk with me. After reading your book, I reached out to Van Carraza. He took me out surfing in Morro Bay. The community in and around the ocean is unbelievably kind. And some people will say, oh, it's the surfer, the surfer dude, or they got nothing going on. No, there's something to people who live at the beach and kindness and helping so and therapeutic. So I I, want to thank you for that. So to switch gears a little bit back into your marine world, you started this wonderful charity called Seaturtles.org, C spelled S-E-E. Tell us about the work, the mission, and what you hope to accomplish from that.
0: Yeah, we founded Sea Turtles about a decade ago, my friend Brad Nahill and I, who's up in Portland, Oregon. And we recognized that there's just a need. People wanted to go out and see a turtle, but they wanted to know how to do it in the best possible way. Not the mob scene at Waikiki Beach you know, or <laughs> High Rise Hotel with a little turtle walk, but they wanted to get their hands dirty and be out there and be face-to-face with these beautiful animals and know that they were helping these endangered animals persist. And so we set up this thing called seaturtles.org and started out as a project just to connect people who were searching for places to go and, and then helping them find these grassroots local conservation projects where they could go and volunteer and facilitating that. It has since evolved to many other other programs, including something called the Billion Baby Turtles Project, and we sort of set this audacious goal to fund the release of a billion baby turtles into the ocean between now and however long our lives are and finding partners. So most recently, SodaStream, the company that helps you not use plastic bottles and make your own soda, carbonated soda. They're donating for every every unit sold to save 10 or more hatchlings. And we work with a number of, of different different partners and really to get, get the numbers to tip towards the turtle's favor but it connects really for me it connects to the blue mine work and i've worked with sea turtles for about the past 30 years with the animals and the organization is younger than that really when you're when you're out there face to face with a turtle it's transformative i mean if you're swimming or snorkeling if you're surfing if you're on the beach at night and you watch a big mama turtle come up took my mom snorkeling in the galapagos one time and she was hanging, hanging on my back, and we snorkeled over a big group of turtles underwater, and when she saw them popping up all around, she just started screaming like a kid. To experience that, like your mom just experience, experiencing joy and awe and wonder with these animals just face-to-face, is so great and memorable. I can remember you know, almost every turtle I've spent time with. So... There's something about that that connects to, to Blue Mind. If you're with a wild animal in the water, having a transformative experience, when you get back on land, maybe you'll live your life a little bit differently. Maybe you're a little, a little more compassionate towards nature. Maybe you are you become a member of an organization or you you, know, you make a contribution or you volunteer. Maybe it shifts the way you vote in favor of restoration and conservation. And so... There's a connection between our conversation about blue mind, that experience, the experience of awe and wonder, and what happens to our brains when we experience that in nature. And what happens is it grows our compassion. So awe, the greatest source of awe on the planet is the ocean and the waters. That experience of awe creates compassion, creates a compassionate mind. Kind of what you're saying about surfers, you're, what, what's going on here? They're just surfer dudes, they just have a lot of time. Yes, and they're living lives full of awe. Every time you go out into the Pacific Ocean, every day, you come back filled with awe. And biologically, neurologically, what awe does, according to Paul Piff at UC Irvine, is it grows our compassion and our empathy. So the experience of awe directly grows our compassion. So if you're living an awe-filled life, you're also gonna probably be more compassionate. And you're nodding because that makes perfect sense when you think about it in your own life. The times when you're most compassionate probably often connects up with a sense of awe. And awe doesn't just come from nature and the ocean and sea turtles, obviously. It comes from just any, I mean, it could be a concert. could be just a magic musical experience that just sets you, like your feet leave the ground. could be a, a rally of some sort. It could be a child, just a you know, birth of our daughters set me on like I don't know, probably the most compassionate moments of my life were probably following the births of our daughters. I just felt cracked open and empathetic about everything and everyone. Mm-hmm. There really is something to that and there is a science and a biology to it. And that all kind of connects. So back to the turtles, that experience is great story. Michael J. Fox was out swimming, snorkeling, ran into a turtle. I think it was in the Virgin Islands and just started following it and hours went by. He lost track of time, lost track of where he was, finally got out of the ocean, walked up the beach, saw his wife and he said, I'm done. And she said, oh yeah, you've been in the ocean a long time. You should be done. They said, no, no, I'm done. I'm quitting TV. And he had that experience of awe underwater with this turtle that opened him up to his compassion for himself. And he rethought his life underwater with this turtle. And he said, never second guessed his decision. It was crystal clear and devoted himself to his foundation to help, you know, with Parkinson's. So that's kind of part of what nature does. It opens us up to these better, more compassionate, empathetic decisions. The flip side, you know, is lockdown lack of nature, lack of awe. And unfortunately, a lot of people live lives like that in that red mind, awe-free existence. And then the compassion shrivels, empathy shrivels. You get very sort of closed-minded and narrowly focused. That's the opposite of blue mind. So it all kind of connects up. The more waves you can kind of experience, the more turtles, maybe the more awe and the more compassion.
1: Yeah. And what is the most urgent issue you're working on
0: that is threatening our oceans right now? You know, I think there's a long list of issues, causes, threats. I think fundamentally, it's a lack of creative apex leadership. And by that, I mean leaders who are not looking over their shoulders to see what everybody else is doing, but who are just looking forward and doing the things that need to be done. It's a rare thing. There are few. But I see over and over and over again in conversations with people in leadership positions that they don't take the first step because they're looking to see if anybody else has taken that step yet. And if everybody else is looking to see if they've taken the first step yet, yeah, you're just stuck. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a, it's just a stuck place. And it takes, um, it isn't just, is isn't courage or bravery. It's something else, you know, it's just a, a different kind of leadership. And so that's our crisis and it isn't just facing the ocean because we have a lot of solutions to most if not all the problems on the shelf. I mean we've got you know this I've got this cool new water bottle and we've got answers. We just need to have the um the personal and political will which requires a certain kind of leadership. So that may not be exactly the you know Oh but that's an interesting th- focus that focus at the top so
1: to speak then okay everybody knows there's too much single-use plastic and what have you and what have you but you're looking at a little bigger
0: yeah take a step back and so why why are these other causes and issues there and I, and I, the other piece of it is from an ocean and water perspective, we have fundamentally undervalued our waters and our oceans and when you undervalue anything or anyone, bad things happen every time, whether it's each other, whether it's a gender, a race, a community, human community. We undervalue our lakes, our sea turtles, our creeks, the ocean, we get the value equation wrong, then the destruction proceeds from there, whether it's nature or people. So my focus is really on fixing, finding those apex leaders and trying to fix that value equation and making blue mind common knowledge is part of fixing the value equation. If you know that the ocean you swim in is the thing that's literally keeping you alive, your relationship with that ocean shifts. If you know that that ocean is the thing that's serving the first responders in your community and helping them wake up the next day ready to serve, you have a different relationship with that ocean or the lake or the river. And so it really is a, a more accurate value equation for our our waters. And when we leave the blue mind story out of our ocean talking points, we undervalue the ocean. Whether we realize it or not, the normal preamble to most ocean documentaries or reports or mission statements for ocean orgs says something like 71% of the planet is covered with ocean. It gives us billions of jobs and billions of dollars fed into our economy, dictates climate and holds the majority of the biodiversity. And you can throw percentages onto each of those things. That is just the beginning. It also is the greatest source of awe and wonder, peace and joy, the sense of freedom and calm, a fountain of creativity. It saves lives of those who need it most. It helps those who serve, serve more. And when we dial that all out of our ocean story, we're drastically undervaluing the ocean and making it kind of boring. Mm-hmm. Our, our ocean story has been pretty boring. the seventy one percent, that billion statistic, it's hard to make the ocean boring, but we're doing it. so I think it's time to kick the the ocean story up a notch mm-hmm. based on this science. yeah, include it. you know, let's not forget that it gives us food and dictates climate and weather and holds biodiversity. That's important, that uh, fresh water is good for hyd- hydration and hygiene and has vast economic and ecological value and hugely important universal emotional value spiritual value it's the place we go to celebrate it's the place we go to mourn it's the place we go to make vows to each other it's the place we go to remember those who are lost there's no reason to leave that out of the story so that's another yeah. <laughs> another problem you know for the ocean is we created a an undervaluing story the good news is it's easy. To, I wrote a book that can help us fix it. Let's upgrade our story, update the story, and include these emotional health benefits. And I think it will be transformative. Yeah.
1: Each year you hold an annual Blue Mind conference. Tell us what the goals for that are, and can anybody participate?
0: Yeah, so we've, back to when I first started working on this book, I didn't know. I didn't know anything. So I gathered... uh the best neuroscientists and psychologists together with the best water people and ocean people and basically got them into a room and said, I have questions and I assigned questions. And then we all just got to listen to say, Helen Reese, Harvard University professor, medical school discuss empathy and compassion in the ocean with Celine Cousteau, Jacques Cousteau's granddaughter. Or uh, Jeff Clark, big wave surfer, Mavericks, discuss dopamine and surf addiction with Howard Fields, who studies dopamine as a scientist, UCSF. And just kind of sit in the front row and just sort of have these amazing (laughs) questions. (laughs) Nobody, (laughs) how fun, right? Intellectually, if you have to be inside, you wanted to be in that room. Yeah, absolutely. And so full day, packed it in had great minds wrestle with new questions and for the so say for the first four years that was just me sponging up everything i could to put into this book and since then we just kept it going and it sort of continues to evolve um, obviously last year with covid slightly different it was entirely online anybody can attend certainly when it's online when we do it in person anybody can attend to that. Basically people say, how do I get invited? And the answer is you just got invited because you asked <laughs> the question. We're not dragging people in the door. The wall is low, but you do have to step over it to get in. But I love small conferences. So it's always under a hundred people. Remarkably, mm-hmm. we've never really had it be any bigger than a hundred people by design. Just everybody's in the room and you close the door and you feel like you know everybody by the end of the day. And you can see everybody's eyes. This is a different kind of meeting than the one I was just at in Dallas, which was 9,000 people. The big pool expo. So <laughs> the pool people of the world. You just are anonymous, basically. But this was is always kind of a nice small group.
1: You know, at the end of the International Surf Therapy Conference we spoke at, you handed me a blue marble. Yes. That is
0: known as your calling card. Tell us why the Blue Marble's handed off to people. Well, I've got another one for you right over there. Don't let me forget. <laughs> and so the first photograph ever taken of Earth, the entire Earth, is known as the Blue Marble, and it's the most reproduced photograph of all time for one reason. We love it. It's our home. You look at that photograph and it you feel something. So the idea that everyone could take a trip you know a hundred thousand to a million miles away from here and turn around and look back and feel that sense of awe and wonder is appealing but practically difficult so that's what the marble is meant to do is remind us that from a million miles away we we look like a small blue marble we're a water planet everything happens here everything you'll ever know happens on this little tiny water-based planet and it's humbling and it's a a shift in perspective that the only people who really get that experience are called astronauts, and the rest of us get a blue marble. But they're (laughs) they're glass, they're recycled, they're quite nice looking. If you look through it, it looks like you're underwater. It's got bubbles and cracks and this nice glow. You're meant to carry it with you when you receive one, and at some point, somewhere, somehow, pass it on to someone you wanna say thank you to. So it's a gratitude gesture. And it's viral by design. So the marbles just keep getting passed along and outward. Some people don't want to give their marble away, so they hang on to it for a while. But then when they do, there is more of an impact to it. It's more special. And the interesting thing is, it's a penny's worth of recycled glass in cobalt blue. But when you get it, and then you get the story, and then maybe it gets passed a few times, it becomes precious. And it's a kind of alchemy that turns a penny's worth of recycled glass into, some people say it's one of their favorite objects and they really value it. And that kind of reflects back onto our conversation. If we get the value equation wrong, if I just kept saying, oh, that's just a penny's worth of recycled glass is essentially trash, and I treat it that way, then maybe you would treat it that way. But when I gift it to you, I imbue it with a story with a better story with value with a perspective with a set a set of values with instructions that it's given in gratitude and meant to be shared again with gratitude and then I'll tell you something like Jane Goodall has one and the Dalai Lama has one and the Pope has one and Harrison Ford has one and and Larry Harper has one Larry Harper about a, to say Larry Harper about that top 5 <laughs> yeah there you go top 5 and people take pictures of who they themselves and they take pictures of the people they give their marble to and so now this little penny's worth of glass recycled glass made in West Virginia by Marble King has this story and this value and so that that is a suggestion that if we can do a better job talking about our oceans and our lakes and our rivers we can advance their value their perceived value and with that perceived value comes Action comes, policy comes, protection comes, motivation for restoration, and more love. I think, and it sounds you know like a couple Californians just riffing in in the redwoods. In fact, is what we are. But the science is on our side. Undervaluing our lakes and our rivers and our oceans, undervaluing each other, leads in one direction. It's a mess, yeah. or worse. So that's what the marble is meant to symbolize, and we've shared over a million of them. And because the instructions are to pass them on, they've probably gone through tens of millions of hands. I really have no idea, really, how many people have gotten a blue marble and passed them on. And it isn't about counting; it's more about you know getting getting them out there and getting the message out there. But the the spine of the book, if you if you have a copy of Blue Mind on the spine of the book, you'll find a blue marble. The last chapter in the book describes kind of what I just said in some detail. And even, you know, the idea that the book itself can be passed on if you don't collect your books, if you like reading and passing them on to somebody that needs to read it, then you can do that too.
1: Well, just in closing, I would want to tell everyone who's looking for a great holiday gift, I mean, everybody should read the book. It has nothing to do if you're struggling or not struggling. It's just it's an easy read. I'm not a big reader. It was so easy to get through. Made perfect sense. So, you know, I do want to encourage everyone to get one. You can get them everywhere you get your books. And I and I want to thank you for teaching everyone and hopefully people listening that that you know water is medicine. It is. and it's free. I could drive home today, stop off Pacific Coast Highway, and go in the water. Come out, and I just had a free experience. I don't think I could for anything better. but um I want to
0: add one one thing about the book is we're we're doing a, an online book club. We do it every year. this will be the ninth year. It starts on January 9th and every evening at 5:30 p.m. Pacific time, I read a little bit of the book for 70 days and I've never missed a day in these nine years. It's ridiculous. I know you're thinking, are you wait, did I hear that right? Yeah, it's ridiculous. I don't know any other I like the book club, but then I heard 70 days. I thought <laughs> yeah. that's a commitment. Well, you, it's a commitment for me. You don't have to join us for, you know, we read one chapter a week. Every Sunday we do the the more traditional book club discussion. But every night I read a little bit of the book. So you don't even need to buy a book, I guess. I mean, it'd be great if you'd like books, but if you just want to listen in, sessions are archived. You can catch up. If you miss a few, just jump forward. If you don't want to catch up, and it's just a way to for people to reconnect about these ideas. And I read the book, but I also highlight advances and updates and new examples of the things we talk about in the book. So if you're looking for like a Blue Mind 101 course, you'll get it. You'll And you'll meet a whole bunch of people online who are also interested in this conversation and some people say it puts them to sleep as well so it could be your new sleep aid listening to me read
1: <laughs> <laughs> well you know i just want to thank you again i love getting emails from me because you have the best sign off of anyone i wish you water before you put your name i just think that's really great and in closing and i ask this of all the watermen and water women i get a chance to speak with do you think cuz this podcast is about all the great givers in the world and all of them are human beings But really, in our world, is water the greatest giver we have?
0: Well, yes. And get a little personal here. Because Uh, we don't want to take from the water too much. We're um, just Thanksgiving week, and my mom's visiting. And uh, just to, you know, I'm going to switch off of the water theme slightly, but she and my father adopted my brother and I and three foster sisters. And, you know, I, I would say, you know the moms out there in the world are also great givers. It's amazing. I, I can't even get my head around what it takes to have somebody hand you a baby, and then to say, "I'm going to treat this baby as if it's mine for the rest of my life." And it's that kind of giving that we need to extend to each other, to all the children, and to our waters. And um, it's almost beyond imaginable in our cynical competitive red-minded society that people can behave so beautifully but your podcast is full of people who in fact do that and unapologetically and without hesitation for their whole lives just give big and that's that's what our our father taught us is you're born you give everything you can and then you die and that's a good life And yeah, to take care of yourself along the way so that you can keep giving, of course. But really, I learned that from my parents and the parents that raised me. And that's the way we approach this whole thing.
1: Well, again, thank you for today. Thank you for inviting me to this beautiful piece of property you have here in Davenport, California, amongst the Redwoods, and and a free one hour therapy session. (laughs) It was tremendous. Thank you again. Thank you. Have just enjoyed an episode of the Good Tidings podcast, highlighting the goodness in people. To learn more about and to support the Good Tidings Foundation, log on to goodtidings.org. This monthly program is brought to you by the generosity of responseresponsibility.org. Don't miss out on the Good Tidings podcast by reviewing and subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.